Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. Welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Michael O'Sullivan, Amaris College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Kara L. Ritzheimer as a guest. She's Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University and author of several publications. Today, we will discuss her most recent book, entitled Trash, Censorship, and National Identity in Early 20th Century Germany. The book appeared with Cambridge University Press in 2016. Hello, Kara. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So I want to start you out today, Kara, with uh, the question that we start almost all of our guests out here uh, with here at uh, the New Books Network. And so it's kind of two questions. First, I was wondering um, if you could discuss your interest in the field of German studies, how that started. But I'm also interested in the circumstances that led you to write this particular book. Sure. So it's funny, I I think probably all of us in academia get this question at some point. Um, my interest in German history was definitely sparked by listening to family stories. Um, both of my great-grandparents emigrated separately from Germany to the U.S., and they met in America. Uh, according to the family story, they met at a dance for immigrants. And um, they both arrived during World or before World War One. and then my grandmother was born in 1917 and her sister shortly thereafter. And my great-grandparents took my grandma and her sister to Germany twice, uh, once in 1923 and then again in 1928-29, which were, you know, pretty important years for German history. Um, And as I grew older, my grandma would tell me stories about those trips, and I was fascinated. Um, I know a lot of people have ancestors who came from Germany, but I feel really lucky because our family stayed in touch. And every generation since has actually met each other. And when I was 16, my dad took me to Germany for the first time, and I had a chance to meet these relatives. And one of them was my grandma's first cousin, who by this point was probably 75, and uh, she had known my grandma because in one of those trips back in 1928, my grandma had lived in Germany for 10 years back in the Heimat. And so when I went to Germany, I met this first cousin. Um, Again, she was about 75. And then one of the first things she did when she saw me was hand me an Easter basket filled with candy and Tempo tissues which I laugh about now because I think of tempo as kind of a grandma thing. But she also handed me a family tree, and this family tree included me. And there was something so welcoming about that. And then the family took me back to the Heimat, which is this little town called Neufen, which is south uh, east of Stuttgart. And they showed me the cemetery where my great-great-grandparents were buried. They showed me the house where my great-grandmother was born. Uh, and one person I met that day was a third cousin who's about a year younger than me. And we just made a great connection and we wrote letters and we visited each other. And we see each other nearly every year now. Um, I had no idea really that that was all going to become a career for me, though, until I was in college. And the summer before my senior year, I read Claudia Kunz's Mothers in the Fatherland. And I think that book probably impacted several women in my generation. And there was something so refreshing about Kunz's wide-angle lens analysis of women and her willingness to highlight them doing bad things. 
And then I read Alison Owings' Frauen. And then there was something about this book, too, and this focus on women that resonated with me. I think I was drawn to women's history as a young feminist, but also all these stories that I'd heard from my grandmother were very matriarchal because my great-grandmother had had nine sisters. And so the history of the family was really a history of women. Um, so I went to graduate school to study German women's history, but this was the late 1990s, so the field was shifting at that moment to gender history. So as for this book, well, it originally was a dissertation, and the dissertation and the book are both about censorship, but I had actually intended to write a book about women consuming mass culture. I had read an article by Adelaide von Saldern and she suggested there was work to be done studying women consuming early movies and things like that. And I liked that idea. I like mass culture. I like women's history. And I thought, aha, this is a good merger. And I wrote a prospectus and it passed. And I applied for a Fulbright fellowship and I got one. And my advisor suggested I go to Karlsruhe because she had worked at the archive there and thought it would be a good place to work. And so I got there and I settled in and I went to the archive. And on the very first day, I talked to a young ar archivist and I said, I'm looking for material on women in movies. And he said, oh, you have, we have nothing like that here. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I have 11 months ahead of me. So I started to dig in. And as everybody who's done this knows, you kind of have to figure out how archives work. And this was before the days of uh, online search engines. So I was using card catalogs and Finbuchier. And I, you know, you start to find a thread and you pull on the thread. So I found the thread. The first thing I found was that there had, in fact, been an early movie company in Baden out of Freiburg. And then I started to see conversations about regulating early film shows using fire codes. And then I kept sort of pulling on this thread and I found that I was going to find more material if I looked under Zittenpolizei moral police. And when I looked in those files, I found this heading of Schundenschmutz. And then, so I had to sort of figure out, okay, what is this? And then I saw people always talking about movies and dime novels together. And I saw them always talking about youth. And in fact, I went to 11 archives in 11 months and only found one reference to women ever. And it was only during World War One, But the rest of the time, everyone was talking about youth and the threat that these commercial cultures pose to youth. And so I, I took the year to just sort of read the archive, as people say, and I poked into every corner I could think of when I was in, in Karlsruhe. And then I started to go to other archives. I went to um, city archives, state archives, confessional archives, private archives, the film archive. And I just followed this trail about, um, about youth. And I ended up writing a close history of anti-trash activism in Baden from about 1900 to 1935. And then after the dissertation, I wanted to expand this into a larger project and make it a national study. So I sort of reconceptualized it. And I went and did more research in other archives in other parts of Germany. And then I wrote this book that ended up being a history of two censorship laws that Weimar lawmakers passed in 1920 and 1926. Well, Kara, yeah, that's uh, certainly both, uh, on the one hand, a very vibrant family connection you've got, uh, and also a very authentic uh, story about, um, you know, graduate school. I think we all have somewhat similar moments where the archivists tell us that, you won't find you know, it here. yeah, we're not going to find anything here, and we panic. Yeah. But, uh, all right. But there it, could be fruitful moments, too, actually. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of a, a rite, you know, a rite of passage in some ways too. <laughs> but uh, the, the, um, but it, but the research process is so interesting in that way. 
Um, all right, I'm going to, um, on my next question, I just want to bring you back to a phrase that you mentioned in your answer. And that is the, you know, the trash and filth, the schmutz and schund, uh, which are these very important <laughs> words to understanding kind of social and cultural history of Germany in the early 20th century. I've run into them in my own research. But in the event some of our listeners aren't quite as familiar with uh, schmutz and schund, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, discuss the word trash, right? Uh, and this term filth and what are, you know, what's their importance to censorship, modern commercial culture and to your book? Well, this is a great question. So I'm guess I'm going to answer by going back a little bit and just explaining that in the 1890s and early 1900s, commercial culture really began to take off in Germany and other parts of the world. And two products that were immediately popular with people were early movies and pamphlet stories, or we might also call them dime novels. Um, so early movies were really short and were closely connected to variety and vaudeville. And between, let's say, 1897 and 1905, people in Germany were likely to see movies if they went to a traveling variety show or maybe a traveling film show that would pass through town. But by 1905, entrepreneurs were converting vacant storefronts into early cinemas. And so this is the moment of the so-called Ladenkino. And within about five years, entrepreneurs with bigger vision were creating luxury theaters. And so what was taking place here in a matter of years was really the blossoming of the movie industry. And many communities went from having no permanent brick-and-mortar moving theaters to having maybe four or five. And at nearly the same time, publishers were realizing that consumers liked pamphlet stories. And these were short, self-contained stories that were cheaply made and cheaply sold and often had graphic covers and illustrations inside. And the language was simpler. And so the barrier to entry was lower for people who could read but weren't super good readers. And so maybe probably a lot of these readers of pamphlet stories were working class, but also I think people of all classes were drawn to them. And these pamphlet stories were different from Cole Porter novels. Uh, Cole Porter novels have been around since maybe the 1870s or before. And traveling salesmen typically sold installments for Cole Porter novels. So you might buy tens or hundreds of installments before you got to the end of a novel. And in the meantime, probably pay out a lot of money. But a pamphlet story was self-contained, maybe 25 to 40 pages long. Maybe it cost just 20 fenning. And in 1905, there was a Dresdner publisher named Adolf Eichler who had been in America as an apprentice. And he came back to Germany in 1905 with the rights to the Buffalo Bill uh, dime novel series. And he published it, sold it for 20 Fenning, and it was an instant hint. He had also purchased the rights to a series called Nick Carter, who's a detective. And so if, if I step back and think about it, you know, in the early 1900s, people really began to see their communities change. They saw movie theaters pop up and they saw local retailers selling dime novels with these graphic covers. And several groups were skeptical of these new commercial entertainments. And so they quickly called them Schund. And Schund means trash. Um, or that's what it came to mean. And they wanted to characterize these things as worthless. Now, if you look up Schund in an early dictionary, like I would look it up in a I did look it up in an 1899 Grimm's Dictionary. You'll find a description that describes it uh, something like it's akin to the waste produced by flaying an animal. That's kind of a stretch to apply it to publications. 
But I think when critics used this term, they were really trying to say that these products had no redeeming artistic or cultural value. And what's important to note is that in 1874, Germany passed a press law that protected publications that had redeeming artistic, cultural, or scientific value. So if someone wanted to see these items regulated, they had to say that they were somehow different, um, that they were worthless, that there was no redeeming value. And then if you took them out of the consumable stream, no damage would be done. So I really saw it as a strategic choice on the behalf of critics of these, these cultural items. They knew they couldn't call for censorship, particularly of publications or printed material. So they had to say that they were worthless items, that they were beyond the protection of this 1874 law, right? They were trash. You just take the trash out, no harm, no foul. Um, now, schmutz is a little more complicated or uh, more serious. Schmutz, I think of more as tending towards the pornographic or smut, as it's sometimes defined. Um, but in the early 1900s, the pornographic tended to be more expensive. And so it was a serious problem, but people thought that uh, pornography was probably being circulated in smaller numbers uh, than dime novels. So they really focused their attention on regulating trash or these dime novels. So in the early 1900s, up until about 1918 or 1919, trash really referred to these pamphlet stories, or what I would call dime novels, and bad movies, particularly any product that seemed just completely uh, produced for the goal of producing profit. And people were really vexed by Buffalo Bill and Sherlock Holmes and Nick, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Nick Carter. And these were these heroes of these dime novels that were so popular. But after World War I, the term shifts a little bit. It expands a little bit. Uh, after World War I, in, in Weimar, you see the production of magazines. Some of these are nudist culture magazines. And so these also fall under the term of Schund. And then what I found fascinating is after 1933, the Nazis used this same language, but they reworked it. And whereas before World War I, trash meant a dime novel or something that was only meant to produce profit, after 1933, trash meant something produced by Marxist and Jewish writers. And so on the one hand, I think they exploited the population's familiarity with this rhetoric. Um, you know, it meant something that was worthless, that if it was removed, it did no harm. But on the other hand, they reworked the definition of trash so that they could use this familiar language to convey their ideology. Yeah, and I think that uh, kind of slippery slope that you follow, uh, you know, how censorship can lead to, you know, unintended consequences down the line is very interesting. And um, I'll probably come back to that later in the interview. Um, so I guess my next question uh, brings us back to another thing uh, that you mentioned earlier. And that is um, these laws that were passed during the Weimar Republic, uh, one in 1920, and the other in 1926. And they both seem to be, or, or don't seem to be, they are very central to your book. So I was wondering if you could just uh, share with the audience what these two laws were. And you've already started to describe why they're so important. But if you want to editorialize on that, feel free to. Sure. Uh, so the first law, the 1920 law, was called the National Motion Picture Law. And this law created two federal review boards. One was established in Munich and the other was in Berlin. And it was the job of these two review boards to review any new movie being produced. So when a filmmaker or a film company finished a movie, before they could release it to theaters, they had to first send it to these review boards. And the review boards split jurisdictions. So 
they kind of split Germany in half. And if a proposal or if a movie was made in the jurisdiction belonging to Berlin, then Berlin Review Board uh, watched the movie and decided whether or not it was um, permissible for audiences to see. And likewise, then if it was produced in Munich's jurisdiction, it was up to the Munich Board to review it. I mention that because more movies were being made in Berlin than were being made in Munich. So Berlin was doing a lot of the review work. And the law uh, passed in 1920 um, created four conditions upon which review boards could censor a film. So if anybody in the review board, I think there was something like nine members and seven out of nine had to agree, but they could uh, censor a film if they thought it endangered the public order, if it offended religious sensibilities if it could have a corruptive or brutalizing effect on audiences, or if it could damage Germany's reputation or the country's relationship with other nations. And so these two review boards, it was up to them to, again, review every new movie that came out, and they watched it and decided if it uh, violated any one of these four uh, tenants, and then they decided whether or not it could be shown to general audiences um, or if it should be restricted and, and not be made available to younger audiences. And one thing to know that's kind of important is as they... Uh, finished their review, they produced a card that would travel with the movie to the movie theater that would lay out their decision, like who could see it, you know, which audiences were allowed to see it. Sometimes this, these review boards might find portions of the movie that they thought needed to be excised, taken out. And so the, the card that traveled with the movie might also say, you know, this film should not include the following scenes. Um, the law also created an appellate board in Leipzig. So if a film company disagreed with a decision, they could apply to the Leipzig board to try to have the, the decision revisited. The 1926 law was the law to protect youth from trashy and smutty publications. And this, move, this law in some ways built on the 1920 law, but in some ways it was different. It likewise created two review boards, again, one in Munich and the other in Berlin, and it also created an appellate board in Leipzig. But it was a little bit different in how it functioned because, you know, there was no way these boards could review everything being published in Germany. So instead, what the law did is it left it up to state officials to create proposals initiating a review process. And so once a state agency created a proposal, they would uh, send it to their the board that was in you know they were in the jurisdiction of, and then that board would review a publication. And what the law did was empowered these review boards if they found an item to be trashy uh, to place it on a national registry. And then these items weren't necessarily prohibited to adults, but if an item was on the national registry, it could not be openly displayed or sold to minors. And so, you know, if we go back to Buffalo Bill, if Buffalo Bill stories end up on the registry. A retailer could not openly display them, but they could have them, you know, maybe behind the front desk and a customer would have to come in and ask for them and they'd have to be um, not a minor to purchase them. So there's similar structure with the review boards, but they have a, a different dynamic in that the film law required every new movie to be reviewed, whereas the publications law created this proposal system and relied on state officials to really initiate a review process. Um, these laws are significant in so many ways. They imposed a regulatory structure on commercial media in Germany and initiated what I argue throughout the book, a constant give and take between regional authorities and federal reviewers and an ongoing discussion about, you know, what kind of morality will prevail here as we review movies and books. And I, I also argue that they may have accustomed people uh, to regulation of commercial media. 
but I would also add that Germany wasn't alone in doing this kind of stuff, um, especially when it came to movies. Several other countries, including the U.S., were imposing film censorship. Yeah, and I just want to uh, dovetail on one thing you're talking about the, at the end of that answer, and that is the role of regionalism in this book. And you certainly laid out how, um, you know, regionalism functioned, I guess, as a legal matter and how these laws were implemented. It also seemed to me that it was a central part of your argument. Uh, I think at one point you had a real nice turn of phrase where you talked about rescuing regional history from the dustbin, uh, you know, in this book a little bit. And so I guess just uh, I was wondering if you could add on maybe analytically, how did regionalism work into the thesis of your book here? Why, you know, why were these local contexts so important? Thank you. I think that's such an important question. I do want to rescue regional history a little bit. (laughs) I think there's a lot to be gained, Um, not only because regional archives have so much great information, but also because we're talking about a country that was a federal and still is a federal system. So if you're only looking at just a few areas like Berlin, I think you're missing much of the picture. So as I said at the sort of onset of our discussion, I really began my research career working in local archives. Um, I was in Karlsruhe, so I started there at the Gerolandesarchiv, and then I developed this project that focused on Baden, and I just delved into every local archive I could think of, and it was quite an education. You know, when you go from city archives to state to federal and back down to confessional, you see um, so many different voices speaking. And I think you gain a very interesting perspective. And this tour of local archives taught me a few things. I know historians still dispute whether or not Imperial Germany was a constitutional state or more of an authoritarian state. But I wonder if people had, well, they had that discussion a little bit. You can see certainly in the 1920s, people referring back to Imperial Germany as more of an authoritarian system. But I saw such a flurry of what we might call civil activity in these archives Um, educators writing to state officials, legislators publishing articles in local papers, people writing letters to the editor, activity that showed people really believed their activism, their local activism mattered. And the truth is, it did. As I said, Imperial Germany possessed a very strong federal system that gave states a lot of power, particularly Bavaria. Uh, During negotiation, Bavaria was able to get a lot of power uh, back under Bismarck in the 1870s. And so states had a lot of power, particularly if the federal government had not moved on an issue. And when it came to regulating early movies and pamphlet stories, there was no real federal law in place. There were some federal legal codes. The commercial code had a few articles that local officials could use to regulate traveling salesmen. Um, The criminal code had Article 184, which regulated obscenity, so they could try to use that. And then they could turn back to their own local codes. So Baden had codes that it turned to. And, um, well, as long as those codes did not violate the 1874 press law, which was sort of uh, at the top of the system. And local officials could also turn to things like fire codes when they were regulating early movie theaters. And so activists weren't entirely wrong when they believed that this was the best place to direct their energy. You know, their goal really was to convince local officials to intervene as much as possible, given the 1874 press law and the shortage of available um, measures in the codes, and to try to take steps to regulate these media. And people who didn't like the arrival of movies in their communities or didn't like seeing kids reading dime novels, again, really tried to emphasize to local lawmakers to take take steps. Um, 
And they adopted strategies that they thought would work at the local level. They developed a rhetoric that condemned these commercial entertainments as trash. They quickly began to assert that children were eager consumers of these products. And they justified censorship as a form of protecting the nation's youth. And it's important to note that people were doing this about 1910, 1912, at nearly the same time lawmakers were beginning to accept uh, their responsibility for overseeing youth welfare more and more. So I really think these regional activists matter because here they were directing their attention to local authorities, which made sense. But at the same time, they were developing a rhetoric that really framed these entertainments as trash. And even though Germany was a federal state, what's interesting is that these authorities talk to each other, right? They would send each other uh, letters asking, what are you doing to combat this problem? You had some prominent anti-trash activists who would tour, go to different regions and talk to different legislators and give public talks. So even though it's a federal system, there's some effort among these local activists to coordinate with people elsewhere. So when it comes to censorship, I don't really think you can understand the 20 or 26 law without going back to these earlier origins, um, particularly to the rhetoric people developed. Uh, so I think I've... Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say one other okay. thing, if I could. Um, so Germany did have this federal system which directed people to the local level. And they began to see, though, that this federal system had its problems. Um, for example, you might have authorities in Saxony who were a little bit more liberal uh, than someone else, maybe in Baden. I'm sort of making this up right now. But you, what people found is that you could have different regulatory responses among different regional officials. And, of course, movie companies realized this. And if something was prohibited in Baden, they would just send it to somewhere else. And so... More and more, right before World War I, a lot of these local activists began to see that what the country really needed was a national law. Yeah, and I, th I think, um, you know, you were touching in that answer a lot on some of the revisionism that you have in your book. Um, and I think one interesting decision was the way in which you made these anti-trash activists, as you uh, call them, uh, into real historical agents of change here. Um, so I did want to, if you, if you had anything else you wanted to add about them, even if it's just, uh, you know, in, in, any other vivid stories or any other interesting aspects of the rhetoric they formed, I think that would be interesting. And I also wanted to give you just a chance to expand if you wanted to on the way you said in your previous answer, the way these anti-trash activists really made youth and protection of youth so important and why that step was uh, you know, so influential. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for that. Um, it's interesting. Agency is one of those issues I continue to think about. Um, these activists were interesting. You know, uh, you always try to pin, I try to pin down and be as specific as possible about who I'm talking about. So I, I would try to do that here. These activists, many of them were, well, there were just so many different kinds of people involved. Um, you had teachers, school administrators, local police, local mayors lawmakers, state ministers, confessional groups, like from the Catholic Church, Caritas had some groups that were involved, people involved from the Protestant side of things. You had interim mission. They would get involved in these conversations. It's possible that all of them saw something to be gained by being part of this public discourse about trash. Um, but one of the virtues or values, I think, of doing close history and going into city archives and state archives is you really begin to find these people um, 
And I found people that I, you know, uh, I don't want to say, yeah, humanized the history for me and, and made it more real. And it also made it harder to sort of just judge them as cultural conservatives who um, were trying to censor everything. Um, it sort of humanized them, particularly when I got to the 1920s, I found a film review board in Heidelberg um, and really looked into some of the people who were on it. And um, such an interesting perspective to have to see their stories and their whole life stories um, as I thought about what they were doing here in the 1920s. As for youth, I think this was such a clever strategic move on the behalf of people who wanted to see censorship. Now, it's possible that many of these people were concerned about youth. I mean, if I look around, I have two children today and I worry about screen time. And I think <laughs> trash was the equivalent of screen time in the early 20th century. And so they may have really rightly been concerned. And I think you have to frame this, at least I did, um, from the sense coming out of the late 19th century that environment shaped character. So people, I think, were rightly worried about, you know, impressionable youth and what they were consuming and what they would turn out to be. More recently, I've been looking at childhood history and the history of adolescence. And now I think about people like G. Stanley Hall in 1904 publishing his book on adolescence. Again, saying that the teenage years were really formative years and what a person was surrounded with would shape what they turned out to be. So I think there were real concerns in the late 19th century, early 20th century that young people needed to be in the right environment or else they'd turn out to be bad people. And I think there's this concern that if you don't raise children right, they won't become good citizens. Um, and I also think in the early 20th century, as I mentioned, state authorities were more and more accepting that they had a responsibility to youth. And in 1911, for example, Prussia passed, I think it's called the Youth Cultivation Act. And it was all about trying to guide people in their young time and or in their free time. And in the early 20th century, there was a big concern about young people, probably between the ages of 14 and 20, who had finished compulsory schooling and were working. But for boys, for example, hadn't yet um, reached the age by which they had to join the military. And for girls, we're still too young to be married. So there was this question of what do we do with this part of the population that's done with school, is going to work, is getting money, and increasingly they're not beholden to their parents and they're no longer beholden to a guild master and they have all this freedom. So I think there's real concern about youth. There's concern about youth as a national resource. There's this fear about particularly working class youth and what they're doing with their free time. And I just think youth is such a persuasive argument. Even today, if anyone says, oh, we're doing this to save the children, how do you fight that? Right? <laughs> it's, it's hard to say, I hate children. Um, so I think they just landed on this really effective lobbying tool that in the 1920s, the left found actually very hard to fight back against. Once they claimed that they were protecting youth um, through their efforts to regulate commercial media. I think they found a very effective argument. Now, again, sometimes, I mean, I would concede that many of these people actually had concerns, but I swear sometimes in documents, I could see people saying, this is a good strategy, right? Like we would love to be able to regulate trash culture or trash publications so that even working class adults couldn't read them, but they knew that was impossible. But I think youth are a Trojan horse. They're a gateway. And if we can pass a law whereby you can't publicly display these items, then maybe we'll also reduce adult consumption as well. Great. And um, another, there were two other issues I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance to talk about just because they seemed, you know, tied up in these, uh, you know, in chapter three, especially, but a lot of the middle chapters of your book, and it's related to youth, uh, you sort of tied 
the rhetoric of these anti-trash activists about youth um, to two topics, I, I thought. One was gender, um, and the other was national identity uh, and how the sort of anti-trash rhetoric helped create sort of a national identity out of this regionalism that you discussed earlier. So I w- wanted to give you a chance to talk about those two issues. Sure. Well, there, the discussion of the impact these items would have on young people was gendered. Uh, there was particularly concern that boys would read stories about Buffalo Bill or Sherlock Holmes or Nick Carter and try to imitate what they saw there. So um, one thing that starts to emerge in the years before World War I are these anti-trash publications. Um, people start writing book-length analyses about these publications and the impact they're having, and they're full of anecdotes. And these anecdotes will say like, oh, you know, a young boy in Cologne, he's known to have an addiction to trash. And he read all of these Buffalo Bill stories and he and his brother conspired to run away and go to America where they could also fight like Buffalo Bill. Um, Or there was fears that these people would read Sherlock Holmes stories and decide to become detectives on their own or Nick Carter stories and become detectives and then read the criminal report in the newspaper and try to uncover crimes. But there was also fear that these kids would imitate the villains, and that they would become robbers and murderers. And these anti-trash texts were just replete with anecdotal stories from across Germany about kids doing bad things. And there was a concern that boys would become criminals and thieves and girls might become prostitutes or be persuaded that it was just so much easier to be a kept woman than to work in a factory. Um, There was also a fear that both boys and girls would be susceptible to suicide, right? That if they read about it, they would um, be inspired to imitate it. And so I do think there was this gendered concern as to what would happen to boys and girls who read. I think probably there was a sense that boys had easier access to these items, but there, you know, you also find comments where people say, well, girls may not access them as easily, but they have brothers who could pass it on to them. Now, as for national identity, I think that's a really important question. This is an uh, issue that really uh, fascinated me as I read the book. And I do think these these stories or these pre-World War I publications full of anecdotal stories really put trash on the national map. And so you could have regional activists in Baden pushing for more regulation, but these books also said, you know, this isn't just a Badish problem, right? We have this going on in Cologne. We have this happening in Frankfurt, in, in Dresden, in Berlin. It's a national problem. And this is being asserted at the same time that more and more people are thinking that a national law is the answer. But I, I think I argue in the book that here you have these activists saying, it's not just our children that are in danger here, it's the, na- the nation's children. And really sort of using this language of youth to forge this commonality, right? Like we all care about our kids. It's important that we all move forward. And it's about this time too, that you have that phrase that comes out, who has the youth has the future. And there's a lot of this language in newspaper articles and texts, right? Like this isn't just about the kids in Karlsruhe. This is about the nation's youth and the nation's future. And I do think activists really lean on this language to also justify more and more a national law. Great, Kara. And I think um, in the interest of time, I'm going to move us forward a little bit uh, chronologically into the Weimar Republic. Um, that is, uh, you know, the, a place where you really uh, make some interesting contributions, I think. And your fifth chapter particularly 
engages uh, the Weimar Republic's two censorship laws that we discussed earlier from 1920 uh, and then 1926. Um, And they regulated films and uh, reading materials, respectively. Uh, So you deepen the field's thinking about why these laws passed with such widespread uh, support. And here uh, in the fifth chapter, you take on the issue of why such a democratic and seemingly progressive republic so curtailed the freedom of speech. Seems like it's a paradox there, right? So what was your new interpretation here and how does it build upon past insights on this matter? Thank you. I feel like I need to confess at this point something. Um, <laughs> confess is the right word. But, you know, we, we write the books and then we submit them for review. And chapter five was one chapter that my reader, I I got a comment back from one of the readers that said, Germany may have been democratic, but wasn't liberal. And that really sent me back to the drawing board. And I actually um, rewrote that chapter, if I can say that. Um, because what it really made me do is go back and think a lot about Weimar in a more serious way. And I had to think about the Constitution and and read it closely. And luckily in the 1920s, or really early in the 1920s, a lot of people had actually commented on the German Constitution, both Germans and Americans and others. And it was there was a lively discussion about the Constitution. Uh, and I also had to really actually think about the legal theory underpinning Weimar lawmaking in the early 1920s. And it actually required me to sort of read up, not sort of, but I had to read up on statutory positivism. And I had to think about how that was different from theories of natural law. So it was really a a story of where the writer or the the external reader definitely, uh, I think, helped me to rethink some important issues. So I'll sort of put that as the premise. Now to go back to your question a little bit. Um, yeah, I found, <clears throat> let me just explain if just, I think I need to give just even a little bit more background. So I need to explain that on November 11th, 1918, we all know that the Kaiser abdicated on November 9th and Weimar or the new Republic was declared. And on November 11th, you have this new provisional government in place. Um, well, I guess they took over on November 9th, but one of the very first things they do is they issue sort of a multi-pronged decree. And this decree from November 11th ended all censorship in Germany. All forms of censorship were gone. So anything done before World War I, even incremental state laws, and this is relating to film and publications, um, anything during World War I, that was all gone. And so everything was rolled back. I should also mention that this decree is also important because it gave women the right to vote, which allowed them to vote for the first time in January 1919. But back to censorship. Again, this decree had lifted all pre-war and wartime advances that local and state authorities had made, and everything was gone. And the delegates working in Weimar um, drafting the new constitution reiterated they had a commitment to free speech as they set to work. And then they created a constitutional article, Article 118, that guaranteed, guaranteed free speech and freedom of the press with some important caveats. And in the wake of that November 1918 lifting of censorship, a new genre of movies started to blossom in Germany, and these were so-called Enlightenment movies. And they built on a, well, they, during World War I, you have the creation of hygiene films meant to inform soldiers and other people about the dangers of things like venereal disease. And these movies pretended or portended to also be Enlightenment movies, um, educational films that were teaching people about important topics. But it's likely that some of them tended towards the pornographic. 
And people were really alarmed by these movies. And between the end of censorship in November of 1918 and the creation of the film law in May of 1920, about 150 of these movies were circulating in Germany. And again, back to regional history, the first time I encountered these movies was when I was reading a legislative debate in Baden and people were up in arms about these movies. So historians that have written about censorship in Weimar rightly note that these movies motivated lawmakers to pass the new film law. But they hadn't really explained why or how these movies motivated lawmakers to create a censorship law. And so I really wanted to think seriously about what had happened in Germany to lead even socialists to think that a film censorship law was a good thing. So I really needed to think seriously about what the war had done to the population, people's perception of what the war had done in terms of morals and gender norms, and how they might have perceived this movie as a way of of combating that. And you see language like, you know, we're a nation that's already been defeated. Let's Let's not facilitate our own final demise by not fighting back against these movies. Now, in terms of the Constitution, I, um, I did want to think more seriously about how it is that Weimar had this very forward-looking Constitution in terms of social rights and even civil rights, but still it, it allowed for censorship. And back to this question of democracy, it really was a democratic constitution. It emphasized the concept of popular sovereignty. Voters had so much power, and I think the Constitution even sort of, I can't remember the details of it, but sort of attributed them as like the origin of power for them. Voters elected officials, they elected the president. But I do argue that the delegates in Weimar created a constitution that offered really a qualified protection of liberal civil rights. So on the one hand, you have a very democratic constitution that gives powers to the voters. But on the other hand, it's a constitution that lays out civil rights, but these civil rights have sort of backdoor clauses to them as one um, person observed in the early 1920s. So for example, you have Article 48. And we all know Article 48 if you're a German historian, right? Um, This article allowed the president in times of crisis to suspend key civil rights. And in fact, the Nazis do this in February of 1933. So these were civil rights that weren't absolute. Um, And one of these rights was Article 118, which again allowed for freedom of press and freedom of expression. But I also argue that this new constitution perhaps accidentally prioritized social rights over civil rights, or at least allowed proponents of censorship to use social rights um, as a wedge to push forward with new regulations. Um, And so what I mean by this, um, again, is that some of these social or these civil rights had backdoor clauses that allowed for their modification in the name of social protection. So let's go back to one article 118, which I've mentioned a few times. It promised freedom of speech and freedom of the press. but at the end of the clause, there is a sentence saying something along the lines of, there is no censor, but provisions can be made to regulate movies and to protect people, especially youth, from trashy and smutty publications. So it's a modified protection of free speech and freedom of the press. Now, at the same t- time, lawmakers adopted other articles like Article 122 that obligated the state to oversee and see to the welfare of certain groups, in this case, young people. So you have a constitution that is thoroughly democratic and that it emphasized popular sovereignty. It has civil rights protected, but these aren't absolute. And then it has this assertion of social rights, saying the state has an obligation to protect young people. So when you come, for example, to the 26th law, people who really supported uh, regulating dime novels, they just had to argue, as they did, that they were fulfilling the Constitution's 
mandate that they protect youth's social welfare. And because this provision, Article 118, had a modification at the end that weakened it in the name of protecting youth, they could be successful. So I, I really dove into the Constitution and I thought seriously about how it had facilitated it. Because I think when you read the legislative record from the 1925 debate, you can really see the groups advocating for the trash law using these social rights against socialists who by this point do not want a publications law. They're very wary of it. Great. And then um, keeping us in the Weimar era, um, I thought that the, uh, the, these regional issues and regional differences came up again in an interesting way. And there seemed to be this tension in, as you describe it, between the capital city in Berlin uh, and other sort of more provincial and a special rural uh, parts of the country. And it seemed like uh, a lot of rural and conservative areas didn't, tr- you know, didn't trust, uh, you know, Berlin as the home of sort of, I, I don't know, a, a more progressive uh, culture in terms of sexuality to, to regulate uh, moralistic things. But then more con- Berlin, by the same token, didn't trust the more moralistic regional governments to make uh, decisions about these things. So when it came to Schmutz and Schund, I guess, uh, can you talk a little bit about this sort of uh, push and pull between Berlin and other parts of the country? Sure. I welcome the question. Uh, both the film law from 1920 and the publications law from 1926 actually created structures that invited this tension that you're referring to between federal and regional authorities. So as I mentioned, the 20 film law created two review boards, um, one in Berlin and one in Munich. And again, they were supposed to review uh, movies coming out of uh, companies in their jurisdiction. And as I mentioned before, uh, Berlin actually was reviewing more movies than Munich. And in terms of permissibility, if I remember correctly, I think Berlin was letting through more movies um, than Munich, but I would have to go back and double check it. Now, again, when these review boards reviewed a film, they also produced a card that was supposed to travel with the movie to the movie theater. But the federal government had really no ability to ensure compliance, right? How you make sure that movie theaters across Germany are showing just what you needed or what you uh, directed. And so the federal government in this case really relied on local authorities to, to make sure that what local movie theaters were showing was in compliance with what the film review board had said, right? That the the movie that was being displayed had been permitted and that it complied with the, the card that came along with it, right? So if certain scenes were supposed to be gone, they, they would make sure that those scenes weren't there. Many communities, depending on how active local authorities wanted to be, created local watch committees. And these local watch committees were often made up of volunteers. And it was their job to go and watch these films and to make sure that everything was on the up and up. And I have to say that when I uh, was you know, sort of reading the, every archive I could find, I was so fortunate that I found in Heidelberg all these files created by a local watch committee there. And this committee had been created in 1919, so before the passage of the 1920 film law. And local authorities created it as a self-help measure. That's how they framed it. It had men and women on it. And um, once the 19 film law was passed in 1920, this local review board stayed in action. And actually, the state of Baden required every community with 15,000 or more inhabitants to create a similar body. Now, not every state was like Baden. But for me, this was great because this committee carried on until about 1934. And the members of this committee went to movies every week, right? And so they'd go and they'd sit in the theater and they'd make sure that what they were seeing 
matched what they were supposed to be seeing, but sometimes they saw movies they didn't like. And so they had the authority, thanks to the 1920 law, to draft a proposal and first send it to district authorities and then send it to state authorities who then would take it to an appeal board. So this law actually created a mechanism by which the federal reviewers watched the movie, but it was up to local authorities to enforce the decision. And it had this appellate uh, system within it whereby local authorities could say, hey, look, you let through a movie that wasn't good. And one clause they particularly used is this one about brutalizing viewers. And so a lot of local officials said, you let through something here that doesn't belong here. And oftentimes they would refer to regional language, right? They'd say, look, what goes in Baden or what goes in Berlin doesn't go here in Baden. And so they would use regionalism and this notion of regional difference to make their case. Um, the publications law was similar in that it too relied on local authorities. So as I mentioned earlier, in order for a federal review board to review a publication, a proposal first had to be made. And the law allowed state agencies to launch these proposals. And a lot of times you again have local activists who are running the complaint up the chain um, to the state authority who will then submit a proposal for them. And in some cases, the same people that watched and enforced the local or watched over local movie theaters and enforced the 1920 film law were the same people who then enforced the 1926 publications law. And I saw that in Heidelberg and they sort of stretched and just expanded their jurisdiction. Um, and once again, they would couch some of their complaints in this idea of regional differences. Um, there was another way these laws facilitated this, though, uh, particularly with the 1920 law, people start to see this, that they realized the composition of these review boards mattered, right? Who was sitting on the review board in Berlin deciding whether or not something could pass? And there was frustration that the review board in Berlin was being too permissible. And so state authorities began to lobby for greater representation. And if I remember correctly, the federal government does agree that there's got to be greater diversity, right? You got to have people from Baden and Bavaria and Saxony on these review boards. And as they head into the 1926 law, which similarly creates review boards, there's actually a big fight. Well, at least when you read the record, it seems like a fight over who will sit on the boards. And Bavaria, uh, it was particularly assertive that there was a north-south divide and that they needed to dominate or at least have significant representation on these boards. So these laws really invited this discussion. And I think sometimes local activists use the language of regional morality to really push back um, and to try to, to make a winning case that the review board in Berlin or in Munich, but usually Berlin, hadn't done a very good job. All right, Kara. And I've got one, uh, I guess, final real content question about the book here, but it's uh, in some ways a big one. Um, uh, I just want to turn to something you were touching on at the start of the interview, and that is to what extent do the historical subjects that you study in this book uh, build a pathway uh, to the censorship of the National Socialists in 1933? And to what extent, on the other hand, do you like to push back on the idea that we should read this history of censorship through the lens of 1933? Thank you. That gives me a chance to talk about so many people. <laughs> um, so I guess I should start by saying, I, again, I followed this review board in, in Heidelberg, and um, it was really interesting. And to, to follow the careers of everybody who worked on these boards, like the director of the board was also the director of the youth, the local youth agency, or Jugendamt. And after 1933, he continued to work. Um, but there was one woman on this board named Camilla Jelenic, who has such an interesting past. Um, 
Camilla Jelinek was born in the Austrian Empire. She was born, I think, a Catholic. She married Georg Jelinek, who ended up working at the University of Heidelberg as a legal theorist and professor of law. And she converted to Judaism to marry him in Austria because the Austrian Empire didn't allow intra-confessional marriage. But then they left Austria because of rising anti-Semitism, and they found a home in Heidelberg. And together they both converted to Protestantism, I think in 1911, 1912. Well, Georg died, and she was a widow, um, but they'd had six, five or six kids. And she continued after his death in this career of activism. And I would, I would just add, in the early 1900s, she had been involved with the, oh, what is it, the, like the German, the League of German Women's Organizations, um, a pretty centrist middle-class women's organization, had, and had worked with Marianne Weber, the wife of Max Weber, to create legal aid agencies in Heidelberg to help poor women. Um, she even carried in 1907 this proposal to try to limit women from being barmaids because she thought they were in dangerous situations. So she has this sort of interesting background. I think she even worked against the prostitution law. So I, I didn't put her in the camp of conservatives, so to speak. But she was really active in this 1920s local review board. And then after the Nazis came to power, her husband had already died. They reclassified her and her children as Jewish. They stripped her of her husband's retirement. Um, one of her children died in Gestapo custody. One tried to get away. She herself died in 1940. So I tell you that story because I say this is a person who helped enforce censorship laws and then became a victim of the Nazi regime. And so I, I see that it's a really complex issue. At the other hand, on the other hand, I see that these activists developed a rhetoric that Nazis used. I do believe there is some familiarity with regulation that Nazis were able to capitalize on. And I guess I'm just persuaded by historians who say, look, we can't always judge Weimar by 1933. But nonetheless, you see continuities. You see continuities in regulation. You know, the Nazis continue with this trash index until, oh, I guess like 1935 when they no longer need it. They depend on this language to give some continuity to what they do. So there's important continuities at the same time. I don't think people who passed the film law or the publications law in any way hoped that they were leading to this system. Great. Well, I would say uh, at this point, Kara, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time. Um, but before I let you go, I need to pose the uh, traditional New Books Network question to all our guests. Uh, sometimes the dreaded question. Uh, and that is, what project are you working on now? I am now working on sort of a connected yet entirely new project. Uh, I'm not working on censorship anymore, but I am maintaining my focus on young people. And I'm working on a book that is exploring girls and girlhood in Nazi Germany. So there's been a lot of great work on the League of German Girls, and this is um, an effort to go further. And I, I um, really want to use girls as the new lens of historical analysis to rethink this time period. Well, that's great. And I think that means at some point in the future, one of our um, many co-hosts on New Books in German Studies is going to have to have you back on the show. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> So um, thank you so much for giving us uh, your time and for agreeing to be on the show today, Kara. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And I would encourage all our listeners to read this book. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you have all been listening today to an episode in New Books and German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan. 
and our guest today was Dr. Kara Ritzheimer. We discussed her recent book, Trash, Censorship, and National Identity in Early 20th Century Germany, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll continue to listen. <laughs>